Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Monday, January 4th. We begin with a look at the news that many politicians, both provincially and federally, traveled outside the country during the Christmas break. We get the latest from David Aiken, Global News Chief Political Correspondent. Next, we get an update south of the border, both on the rising death count from COVID-19 and the political firestorm caused by a leaked phone call between President Donald Trump and Georgia's Secretary of State. We catch up with Reggie Cicchini, Washington reporter for Global News. Could contact tracing create a more effective vaccine rollout in our nation? We get the thoughts of an infectious disease specialist from Queen's University. And finally, foodies unite. We take a look ahead to what tasty culinary trends we can expect to see in 2021. We speak with Globe and Mail food critic Dan Clapson. 6.42 on the morning news. We're now learning a... Plenty federal and provincial politicians left the country in the last weeks despite public health guidance to stay at home and avoid all non-essential travel. With more information on where things stand this morning, we are joined by Global News Chief Political Correspondent David Aiken. Good morning to you, David. Morning, Andrew. How you doing? Good. Thank you for taking the time with us. Now, we heard over the weekend of political leaders in our fine province engaging in non-essential travel. However, Albertan uh, politicians aren't the only ones doing this. Is that right? Well, it depends on your definition of essential travel, and I think really that's where uh, voters, constituents, the public is going to, you know, raise eyebrows or give a pass to politicians. So uh, certainly, uh, you know, this really all started in Ontario with the finance minister in Ontario, Rod Phillips. He was found to be vacationing in St. Bart's in the Caribbean, and he came back and it was pretty clear that was not essential. And he quit. He had to resign his job as finance minister. Mm-hmm. And in Alberta, of course, who now there's like, what is, I can't, I can't keep count. Eight, nine MNAs or MLAs rather, um, all from the UCP, including municipal affairs minister Tracy Allard. You know, she, she apparently went to Hawaii because that's what her family does every year. Is that essential travel? I think a lot of Albertans would probably say no. Now, let me sketch out where the federal uh, situation sits at right now. We have uh, four federal MPs who left the country, and they all have what they say are reasons that were essential. Uh, one conservative, one New Democrat, two liberals. The conservative from Calgary, Ron Leipert, a former provincial health minister. Leipert has uh, some, some property down in Palm Desert, California, and he traveled there twice, he says, for, quote, essential property maintenance. So, you know, I guess that's going to be up to the folks uh, in Calgary to judge whether or not that's essential or not. That's where he went. He told his leader's office he was going before he went. The other three, the other three MPs did not tell their leader's office, and they are, well, I'll give you the liberals first. Uh, the first is Camel Kara. She's a liberal MP from Brampton. And Camel Kara, by the way, is one of the MPs. She actually got COVID. She got it in the spring. She's a registered nurse, and she's been volunteering, you know, in clinics, et cetera. She certainly would know public health rules. But she went to Seattle in December for a memorial for a recently deceased relative. She went there, came back, did 14 days of quarantine. But she didn't tell her, her the leadership, and she has now resigned from some of her parliamentary responsibilities. The other Liberal MP is from Montreal. His name is Samir Zuberi. He went to Delaware. Uh, There was a very ill relative there, and he came back to Montreal, quarantined, but he too has resigned from some parliamentary responsibilities. The uh, The other one is New Democrat Nikki Ashton from northern Manitoba. Again, an ill relative, this time in Greece. That's where she traveled to. 
She didn't tell her leadership. She got stripped of her critics' roles. So that is the fe- – and then we also learned there were three other liberal MPs who left the country, but that was in the summertime when there was – you know, the restrictions were less restrictive, I suppose. Um, and they did receive permission from – or they did at least tell their leadership. And again, they all say it was for essential travel. So I guess it's going to depend, as I say, what do you think essential is? Mm. Because you're right. The, the rules are non-essential travel. Uh, you know, we don't know what Tani Yao, the uh, Alberta MLA, from uh, Fort Mac is doing in Mexico because nobody can reach him. Mm. But Premier Kenny's got nine MLAs. Is it, it you correct me? Nine or eight uh, MLAs that uh, left the country, and uh, you know, I guess people have to decide was it essential or not. I think a lot of mm-hmm. people may look at Minister Allard today and wonder if she's going to have to do what Minister Phillips did in Ontario, and that is uh, resign. Yeah, we, Rod Phillips, you mentioned I believe one other resignation, uh, self resignation within that mix. There, it's hard to keep tabs through the numbers seem to be rolling through. But mm-hmm. any political fallout any further, or do you think, uh, uh, as far as the social media has blown up like uh, I've never seen before, do you think that these governments it, have to do something? Well, I think it has blown up. But again, I think it, it's blown up in both directions. People are, for example, I've seen a lot of conservatives say they have no problem with the liberal MPs traveling for, in one case, essentially a memorial for a deceased relative, and another case for uh, a very ill relative. And again, all the travel protocols were kept. You know, when they return, you got to do 14 days of quarantine. So it depends on your point of view. Yeah. I think there was a broad opposition to the idea of a a, a finance minister going to the Caribbean, uh, which is not essential, clearly, after his government is saying, do not travel, and then also leaving behind some social media posts that went up on Christmas Day. This is Rod Phillips I'm talking yeah, about that looked like you were, you were uh, out there. So it's going to depend. I really think... The, the, I really think the focus today will be on Alberta and what Premier Kenny does, because in addition to these MLAs, we've also got the case of the Premier's chief of staff. And remember, this is a political appointee, the Premier's, you know, cl- one of the Premier's closest advisors, Jamie Huckabee, going to England. And he was in England when the Canada imposed new restrictions on any travel coming from England. England's got the new COVID-19 variant. Mm-hmm. We don't want anybody coming in from England. And he returned to Alberta via the United States. So certainly NDP leader Rachel Notley is going to be pressing this issue, and I should point out that the, Rachel Notley's caucus uh, noting that not a single new Democrat left the country uh, over the break, and uh, on the other side of the aisle, well, Kenny's got a boatload of uh, you know very tanned MLAs, uh, you know eight or nine of them. <laughs> if nothing else, it gives us a lot to talk about as we enter the new year and the first week of the new year that uh, can sometimes be slow news. So thank you so much for your time this yeah. morning, David. Okay, no problem. Cheers. That is uh, David Aiken, Global News Chief Political Correspondent. Case numbers continuing to rise following the holiday season, and we're told that the worst could be coming in January. Almost overshadowed uh, by the release of a bombshell phone call between President Donald Trump and Georgia Secretary of State. Uh, Let's get some details right now with Reggie Cicchini, Global's Washington Correspondent. Good morning to you, Reggie. Good morning. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Uh, thank you for joining us this morning. So let, let's let's get to the bottom of this uh, phone call. Uh, Donald Trump pressuring Georgia's Republican Secretary of State to, quote unquote, find enough votes to overturn Joe Biden's win in the state's presidential election. Uh, but where, where did this tape come from to begin with? 
So what we know is that this phone call happened on Saturday between President Trump, those close to President Trump, including his chief of staff, and then members of the Georgia election official party, including uh, the Secretary of State. This happened on Saturday, and on Sunday, members of the Secretary of State's office released this tape, which they didn't intend to actually do, but the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, said that they would do so if the president provoked them. And then here on Sunday morning, we had President Trump uh, kind of making baseless claims about what that phone call actually was about and it kind of twisted the arm of the office they put that tape out there and this really now has put not only the president in a difficult spot but also those gop lawmakers that are trying to follow in his path by objecting biden's victory what 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 could the legal ramifications be behind something like this has that been looked into well, I mean, it's it's a gray area right now, uh, and it's simply because the president, while asking for the secretary of state and for election officials to bend over and find these votes and say that they could find themselves in criminal penalty if they don't do so, he stopped short of actually saying that he would do this. Nonetheless, there are a number of legal experts out there that say that this goes against Georgia state law, uh, which forbids any kind of interference in a federal or state election. So you can just uh, kind of imagine that the flurry of activity among amongst uh, legal experts and legal analysts to try and figure out whether or not, once again, the president is going to be accused uh, of trying to make himself higher than the law. This is the week, uh, Reggie, we were talking about even back in November as an important week when it comes to moving ahead. Tell us the importance of this this week. Well, look, there's a couple of things that are going to be important moving ahead. Number one, on Tuesday, we have a Senate runoff race, which is going to determine control of the Senate. Uh, and this is, uh, you know, problematic, especially given the fact that it's in Georgia, where the president held that phone call uh, with the Secretary of State. And then on Wednesday, Congress is expected to meet uh, and they will certify the results of the election, the Electoral College results, and give Joe Biden the definitive victory. It is going to face resistance. There are a number of, of, of Republicans from the House and from the Senate that intend to object to this, which will force debate between the two chambers. But at the end of the day, because there's not going to be a unanimous consent, Democrats run the House right now. Uh, Joe Biden will uh, stand victorious. It's just going to likely be a delayed victory. All right, let's switch gears and talk about uh, coronavirus as deaths get closer to reaching the 360,000 mark. The cases seem to still be rolling in, and uh, we are told uh, that it could get worse before it gets better following holiday travel. Yeah, and look, this is a this is something that had come out, you know, in the week before Christmas, essentially, with doctors up to and including Dr. Burks, Dr. Fauci, saying that the number of people that were passing through airports, you know, being uh, on the approach to and over one million in the days leading up to Christmas, uh, that this was going to be problematic weeks down the road. It's something we saw after Labor Day. It's something that we absolutely saw in the U.S. after U.S. Thanksgiving. Uh, and now with more people traveling through airports, there's a fear that this is going to simply just increase those number of cases, which is going to put pressure on hospitals. Hospitals, and which is ultimately going to lead to more deaths in this country. And the timeline of that, uh, from what health experts said, was likely going to be in and around the same time that Joe Biden was inaugurated, in, to, in and around the 20th or 21st, which is just going to compound the problems that the incoming administration is going to have to deal with to try to get this virus under control. Let's talk about some of the hot spots, And I believe it was California that has flared up again, big time hearing that They've had more than 50,000 cases a day. Is that, is that the number one hotspot at this point or are they spread out through the, out the country? 
Well, I mean, look, there are still several states that are seeing an incredible number of cases on a daily basis. But California uh, was and remains uh, the kind of epicenter within the epicenter, which is the United States. Uh, And it's because we're seeing the state not only uh, take a dramatic rise in cases, the deaths are leveling off, but they're still high. But also California's ICU rate is at zero percent, meaning it's critical. Uh, There is just no space for either new covid patients or for general population patients that need to uh, to, that need any kind of uh, a hospital care there just is not the space for it but that is something that we have seen across a number of states we've seen those field hospitals that went up at the very beginning of this pandemic need to be reactivated solely because there isn't the space inside of these overburdened hospitals right now Uh, and we saw over the weekend as well in new york obviously the hardest hit at the very beginning of this pandemic was just the next state to reach more than one million cases so this is a problem that while there is an attempt to get it under control with vaccines is still wildly out of control. What is uh, what is the uh, latest update on vaccine distribution in the nation? So we know that more than 4 million people have been given their first doses of the COVID-19 uh, vaccine. That is far below where the U.S. wanted to be. Uh, you know, towards the end of last year, Secretary, uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services Alex Azar said that under Operation Warp Speed, 20 million Americans would have been uh, vaccinated by December 31st. Obviously, being January 4th and only 4 million people, that's far below what was expected. Uh, the number of doses is nowhere near what they were expecting. Roughly 13 million doses have been dis- distributed. Uh, and there is a call now on the federal government to give states help uh, because they simply cannot cope with the fact that, A, they are trying to deal with administering this, but also they are strapped for cash because they have been left to fend for themselves for this entire pandemic. Well, last week, uh, Joe Biden, uh, President-elect Joe Biden, came out and said he would use the Defense Production Act to ramp up a vaccine distribution. What kind of a difference would that make? And uh, you know, do you have a timeline if that was set into motion? Well, I mean, look, using the the Defense Production Act to ramp up vaccine production is good because it will mean that there are more doses to be procured by states. The problem is, is that states simply don't have the money right now to be able to administer these uh, these doses in places like Florida, in places like New York, where hospitals and small clinics and pharmacies are the ones that are being burdened with administering these vaccines. They don't have the manpower to do it. And you're seeing that on weekends and on holidays, the numbers are actually going down solely because they don't have an ability to staff these uh, these places where people are lining up for hours and upon hours to try and get vaccinated. So getting more vaccines is great, but what states need is money. And that's why this stimulus bill that was passed uh, with COVID relief is expected to provide billions of dollars for individual states to be able to ramp up their abilities to administer vaccines. Because if you have, you know, hundreds of thousands of shots, that's one thing. But if you have nobody to administer them, they're simply going to sit in storage. Real quickly here, uh, Reggie, you know, here in Calgary, we see masks everywhere. If you if you see the odd person without a mask, it's a, a very much a, a rarity. What are you seeing on the street day to day, maybe even grocery shopping in, in uh, Washington? Well, look, Washington, D.C., from the very beginning of this, has had an incredibly strict mask policy. The mayor, who acts as a governor because we're not actually a state, uh, put that in place back in March. And you cannot be outside without a mask on. You cannot be inside without a mask on. And most inside places, especially when it comes to things like restaurants, have been shut down again. uh, And and it's simply only outdoor eating that's allowed. So masks are still kind of a a day-to-day normal in uh, in the Washington area. But it's not like that across the states. There is still a good number of governors who have not decided 
decided to go in the direction that medical experts have said, uh, and they have not put mask mandates in place, most notably in South Dakota, where the governor continues to use Twitter to push baseless uh, and kind of, uh, you know, bogus claims from fake medical experts that masks are more of a problem uh, and, and can lead to, you know, further issues. It's simply not true. The majority of the medical world has not gone that way. Uh, but because there's been no federal direction on mask use in the United States from the top levels of government, including from the president, it really has led to piecemeal uh, kind of policies. And that has led to the further increase in spread uh, of COVID-19, which is why President-elect Biden has said that when he gets in mm-hmm. office, he will mandate uh, uh, masks uh, across the country. Incredible. It's an incredible time. And the story continues to unfold. Thank you so much for your time, Reggie. Thank you. That is Reggie Cicchini, Global's Washington correspondent. Very good morning to you. It's the morning news here on 770 CHQR. Uh, much like how firefighters use a hotspot method to target where the blaze is expanded the quickest, could a similar approach be used for vaccine distribution to gain quicker herd immunity? Dr. Gerald Evans, an infectious disease specialist at Queen's University, joins us now with his take on the idea. Good morning to you, Dr. Evans. Hi there. Oh, good there. morning. Oh, good. We had a bit of a hang up there. Uh, thank you for taking the time with us. Uh, let's. Uh, we'll get to this approach and this hotspot method comparison to, to how firefighters work in a second. But let's go back to herd immunity, because this is a term we used a lot during the beginning of the pandemic. How do we defer, uh, de- define herd immunity and how does it work? Well, the general principle of herd immunity is that there's enough people who are immune to uh, an infection that's transmissible that they, in essence, protect the rest of the herd that, for instance, either hasn't been infected or can't be vaccinated as a, as a sort of classic example. Okay, so how much a percentage or how much of the population needs to have that vaccination in order to achieve that? Well, it depends on how transmissible the disease is. So for a highly transmissible disease, for instance, like measles, uh, we like to see about 90 to 95% of the people, the herd, the number of people around uh, are being immune. When you get to a disease like COVID-19, which is a little, which is less transmissible than measles, uh, then we think that herd immunity is going to be achieved probably around somewhere between 70 and 80% of the people being immunized. Okay, so the hotspot method when it comes to firefighters, uh, you know, uh, doing their uh, due diligence to get that fire knocked down, uh, how do we compare that to uh, super spreaders and contact tracing? Well, that's the really important part of the sort of study that was um, has been sort of published around this issue, which is uh, what we know about COVID-19 is it has something we call over-dispersion, meaning that actually a large majority of people may uh, transmit it either to no one or to only a small number of people. But we recognize that some people can result in transmission to many, many others. And it's the averaging out of that that gives us the idea of a reproductive number about two to three, in other words, about typically two or three cases produced from every active case to a susceptible population. So the key with that model is that if you target these people who are super spreaders, if you want to call it, the ones that result in a lot of cases being transmitted, then that's going to have a more meaningful impact on reducing the transmission of the virus uh, out in the population. The problem is, is identifying who those people are. Okay, yeah, I was going to say, generally, wouldn't this be after the fact or this be um, people who work in certain situations or people who uh, have certain lifestyles? 
Well, one of the things we know is it's not so much the super spreader as what's called a super spreading event. And yeah. We have a lot of those that have been well characterized now over the last year or so, and that is, uh, for instance, people who work in um, a meatpacking industry where it's a cold environment, a lot of loud machinery, people are speaking very loudly and therefore sending out a lot of droplets and short-range aerosols, and those can result in super-spreader events, as can social gatherings like weddings and funerals and even religious organizations meeting. So it's really then trying to target who are those individuals within those events which tend to uh, contribute the most to transmission, and that's the really hard part. And it's been speculated that, well, maybe if you just look at people who tend to be very mobile and are moving back and forth to work or to specific center, uh, specific sites where that kind of event may happen, if you immunize them first, then you kind of get more bang for your buck early on. But doctor, what about the optics of saying, uh, you know, you can uh, jump the line of vaccination because of your <laughs> bad behavior or by behavior that, uh, you know, isn't recommended? Yeah, so that's where we get into this ethical principle, which is why would you want to reward potentially immunization and protection from disease to people who are more likely to spread it? So uh, I think we have to get rid of the idea that necessarily these people represent people who are, you know, willfully not following uh, recommendations about social distancing and maybe actually... uh, trapped by the fact that they need to work, the work environment they go to tends to be one where that uh, kind of super spreading event can happen. And in that case, it would be a little bit like priorizing whether it be healthcare workers in long-term care hospitals or even uh, elderly people at risk. It might be targeting them to get the most benefit from it. But we certainly wouldn't want people to believe that, you know, if you're going to be somewhat reckless, if I can say, with your behavior Mm -hmm. and putting yourself at risk, that somehow you would jump the queue. That would be wrong, and I think uh, most people would agree ethically it isn't uh, correct. Well, I've got you on the line. It's, it's worth uh, bringing the latest news that came out of Britain at the Oxford AstraZeneca uh, vaccine being doled out this morning in, in the UK. So there's good news there in the sense that uh, Canada has uh, pre-ordered 20 million doses of that vaccine. What are your thoughts on uh, what you're seeing as far as the vaccine rollout is in, in our nation to date? Well, I've been very encouraged by the fact that the vaccine rollout is probably weeks ahead of what a lot of us speculated would happen in terms of the research, the regulatory approvals, and then the rollouts. It looked like things were moving fairly quickly. Now we're at the stage where, you know, we've got um, potentially three vaccines. We have two certainly here in Canada. The AstraZeneca is probably the next in line for potential approval. Uh, Now the problem is getting it into people's arms. And that's the part where, you know, I think um, there, there has been planning going on, but it probably needed to be sped up, but I think it's because we were working on the timeline that these vaccines would really only be available sort of uh, at the later part of the current month we're in, rather than the last uh, half of December. But the, the, the Pfizer, the Moderna, we're talking about the AstraZeneca, the Oxford Project as well. I'm wondering, I don't want to put you on the spot, the top three that we've uh, brought up and talked about and that have been in the lexicon over the past couple of weeks, those are the top three. Are there others that we can see down the horizon uh, you know, making their way to production or to, to success? Uh, absolutely. There are ongoing trials now with a, a single-dose vaccine uh, made by Johnson & Johnson. Uh, there's another um, one which I think some of us who sort of uh, understand a little bit about vaccines are excited about, which is a Novavax vaccine, which is based on what's called a recombinant protein. So instead of using an mRNA platform, which is what Moderna and Pfizer use, uh, and instead of using a non-replicating viral vector with an, ad, uh, an adenovirus that um, the AstraZeneca one uses, this just makes an artificial 
artificial protein that looks like the spike protein, you inject it into people's arms and you get an immune response, very similar to what we do with, for instance, hepatitis B immunization. So those are all coming down the pipe, and I expect over the next three to four months, we're going to see approvals of uh, a number of those vaccines. Good stuff. Light at the end of the tunnel. Thank you so much for your time, doctor. Thank you. That's Dr. Gerald Evans, infectious disease specialist at Queen's University. 908 on the morning news. It's been everything in the past from sliders to upscale donuts. We've seen kale in the spotlight and in kitchen gadgets. Items like air fryers have had popularity along with Instapots. With a look into the crystal ball and see what might be trending in 2021, we're joined by the ultimate foodie, Dan Clapson. Dan is a restaurant critic for the Globe and Mail and lead foodie behind EatNorth.com. Good morning to you, Dan. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Happy, uh, thanks for being here and Happy New Year to you. And mm-hmm. I know that, you know, some people are envious of your job, but it is a real job. You have to, you know, dig in, take notes. Um, but it's a, a very tasty job. And part of that is, is looking ahead to trends. So how can we even tell what we might you know, see as a trend? Food and drink trends are, are definitely one of my favorite parts of my job. I do like forecasting and kind of keeping tabs. And, you know, trend forecasting at some level is just putting your best foot forward in terms of guessing and hoping what will pop up. But the interesting thing about the pandemic is that it really halted a lot of types of food trends. So when you would go into a restaurant, you might see, you know, like the it ingredient one year, maybe cauliflower, the next year it's kale, like you mentioned. Uh, this really pandemic stopped all of that because restaurateurs moved into survival mode, right, where they were just trying to keep themselves open and keep the business running. So in terms of restaurants, it's really hard to guess what's going to happen this year outside of the explosion, further explosion of things like cocktail kits and meal kits. Mm-hmm. But I think one particular item that will have a boom this year is kombucha. And now kombucha is mm-hmm. not a, a new drink by any means, but I think we're going to see it used a lot more in alcoholic format. So whether that means a canned cocktail or bartenders using it more, I think that that will really get some time in the limelight. What in the heck does it, have you tried an alcoholic kombucha? What the heck does that taste like? I have actually, and I, and I will throw to Wild Sea Kombucha, the local company here in Calgary. They were, I believe, the first in Canada to make a canned kombucha cocktail. They're, they're quite delicious, in, in my opinion. There's also a new to Canada company called Flying Embers, which is based in the States and very popular. So typically, when you see an American company entering our market with a product like that, you will see more popping up across the country. Mm-hmm. But the other thing I'm going to predict this year is I think we're going to see a lot more cell-grown meat products come into the retail market. And that means essentially, uh, I guess they are technically meats, but they're chunks of meat that would have been grown from cell form, so not taken from a, a full animal. Yeah. So this is like... So don't want to blow your mind, but... So it's, it's, it's kind of... Uh, when you say GMO, this is the ultimate... Is, is, it, is it genetically modified or is it just a... Not genetically modified. It would be growing from cell form. So, you know, at some level, I guess it is. You take a chicken cell and you can grow meat from it, technically. So there's there's multiple companies trying this right now, mostly in the States. One's called Eat Just. They're based out of San Francisco. And they actually just launched their chicken meat product in Singapore. So that's their first test market for it. So who knows what could happen this year. Obviously, plant-based meats are getting extremely popular now so i think we will see a lot more retail products based around that as well but the cell-grown meats one is definitely interesting to me wow incredible yeah. my mind is blown i feel like it's blade <laughs> runner to assert our matrix uh, you know let's let's talk a bit more about the you know uh, vegetable based meats because uh, you know obviously it seemed to me like restaurants led the charts and we're seeing more and more in the grocery stores you think we'll have more options in 2021 and beyond as as far as you know meatless meat in the grocery uh, aisles Oh, absolutely. I think, if anything, that will probably be the biggest retail trend of the year. And, you know, 
Calgary being where we are, we are the, the heart of Alberta beef country, so we haven't always embraced the plant-based movement as much as other major cities have. But I think now you are really starting to see that, especially with the, the restaurant V-Burger. It's a vegan fast food restaurant on 17th Avenue. has become wildly popular, so I think we will also see many more plant-based options as the, as the months go on. Um, one other interesting thing about retail shopping as well, I think people at the grocery store now are going to be more aware of how sustainable the packaging of a product is. You know, I think seafood sustainability is front of mind now for people or, you know, getting local meats from a local butcher and things like that. But I think people are going to actually start looking at the way that things are packaged and if the packaging is compostable or even, you know, recyclable packaging, pardon me, will be a bare minimum this year, I think. Um, Assuming that, uh, you know, you're you're going with the forecast uh, uh, trend that, um, you know, curbside pickup and delivery will uh, remain pretty much the same over the next uh, handful of months? Oh, absolutely. That that goes without saying. You know, Uber Eats and every similar company, uh, Skip the Dishes and whatnot, they're, they're just getting more and more popular as, as the weeks go on, especially in the pandemic. It will be interesting, though, to see, and this is why the pandemic really disrupts things. Once everyone gets vaccinated, or most of the population does, and people return to to restaurants like we normally would have, you know, a year and a half, two years ago, it'll be interesting to see if those companies become less successful with that. So I think this is, there is still a lot of unknown throughout this year. I want to get your thoughts on on the use of an, an Uber Eats, a Skip the Dishes, a, a DoorDash, and as a foodie, I'm sure that you've used one, if not all of those services. Mm-hmm. I've used a couple of them. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm wondering, like I looked at a, a local shop, and I was planning on picking it up, then got busy. The same order uh, was just a couple of bento boxes. The same order would have cost me $18 more um, versus uh, you skip the dishes versus driving up and, and supporting the local business uh, as I did because I'm cheap, as you you know me, uh, <laughs> to save 18 bucks for the same meal. But the other part of it, <laughs> these people are saying, you know, a lot of people say, done with these services, but I'm here to tell you that these services also employ Calgarians. So it's a, it's a double-edged sword. Do you think that it's just a case of uh, them being fine-tuned down the line? I do think when you're looking at trying to preserve our food and drink, communities and not just in Calgary but in every city across Canada I do think that if you are able to go pick up your food that does save that restaurant a lot of money Mm -hmm. so I do strongly encourage people to do that I know it's not always possible there are some restaurants that do their own delivery in-house and I feel like that is one of the better options as well if you're ordering from a restaurant directly and they can deliver to you for a fee then that's fine but yeah I do I would highly recommend people pick up their orders that is the most uh effective way for restaurants to get a decent profit, which I think we all know is very minimal, especially these days. Now, I might have, uh, you know, not the best hindsight uh, because this past year went by in the blink of an eye and it was Mm -hmm. a a different year, but it was my experience anyway, probably 2020, probably 2019, maybe late 2018. I know you're ahead of the curve, but uh, it seemed to me that Mexican cuisine was super hot over the past couple of years. Uh, Taking that as one example, any type of cuisine as far as, you know, full restaurant concepts that we might see in the next year to 18 months? You know, I think, again, one of the interesting things out of the pandemic was also, you know, the anti-racism movements that began happening in the late spring and kind of carried on still to some effect now. Um, I think because of those anti-racism movements, diversity is front of mind for food lovers. So I think people are going to seek out a variety of different cuisines from around the globe and not specifically like one trendy one. I think that people are going to try to explore cuisines they aren't as familiar with, like, you know, Sri Lankan food or Ethiopian food, things that maybe wouldn't have been front of mind before. Um, You know, we talk a lot over the years about Asian fusion and, yeah, Latin American cuisine can be very popular, embraced by lots of local chefs. But I do think that one thing 
a local food lover is going to really focus on this year is this diversity in terms of like what they try themselves. Yeah, two of the, uh, you know, I guess heavyweights in the uh, kitchen tech department have been, uh, you know, uh, the air fryer, the Instapot. Mm-hmm. You might even mm-hmm. throw the sous vide in as, mm-hmm. uh, as a contender. I'm wondering if you're, uh, we're going to see the popularity of those three continuing or is there any new gadgets that we should be looking forward to in the next year to 18 months? Well, I'm on my own personal mission of making those vintage sandwich maker, press makers. Oh, you know, yes. little, yeah, the triangular shaped sandwiches you end up with. I'm on a personal mission to make those trendy this year. Whether or not that will happen is another story. But I do think in, in terms of the world of technology, I think we're going to see some interesting app applications with grocery stores. So there's a grocer in Toronto, McEwen's Fine Foods, owned by Mark McEwen of Top Chef Canada. Wow. And they just launched the first virtual shopping experience for um, a grocery store customer just earlier in December. So I think we might see more of that kind of thing coming through the pipeline too. How does how does something like that look, Dan? Have you had a chance to test run that thing? I haven't yet, but uh, yeah, I think it's basically just like similar to what you almost like Google Maps, you know, where you have that option where you can look at the street in real time. I think it's somewhat similar to that. Incredible. Yeah. Well, uh, happy eating to you, Dan. All the best in 2021. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thanks for having me. Good stuff. That is Dan Clapson, restaurant critic. You can read his articles in the Globe and Mail. And, of course, he is the lead foodie behind eatnorth.com.